Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Nathan, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here um, at New King. And um, uh, if you haven't bought your wife a Christmas present, Christmas is a week from tomorrow, so make sure you go do that. This is your reminder. Uh, So uh, we're still in our Advent series here at New King, uh, and just a few weeks ago, uh, Ben uh, began that series at the beginning of Luke uh, with a story of the angel Gabriel coming to uh, Zechariah and delivering the message that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son uh, named John, who we know uh, more frequently, or who we know better as John the Baptist. And so this morning, we're looking at this prophecy at the end of Luke 1 that Zechariah has at the birth of John. So a few weeks ago, when Ben began in Luke, he kind of focused on John's life, his calling, his ministry, what the Lord was going to do through him. But I want us to go back to the beginning of the story and really zero in on Zechariah and what he is doing in the story. Uh, My buddy Zeke gets a little bad rap uh, in this story about how he responds, but he actually is one of my favorite characters in all of the Gospels. Uh, I see a lot of myself and I think a lot of the people of God uh, in Zechariah. So I want us to go back and look at the story uh, of him and how he responds to Gabriel and what happens. And then once we get to the prophecy, uh, we'll break that down and look at that. So here at the beginning of Luke, Luke opens his gospel telling us that many people have undertaken the task of compiling the events that took place surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus. So many people believe, based on Luke's name, on his mastery of the Greek language, and the way that Paul describes him, that he is a Greek Gentile. And here in the opening to Luke, we learn that he isn't an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus, but rather he has done all of this investigation, he's interviewed all of these people about the life of Jesus so that his readers, both his original readers and us, so that we can know with certainty the things about which we have been taught. 
And so when we get to Luke 1, verse 5, Luke takes us back to a previous age. It's some 60 to 70 years before he begins writing this gospel. It's an average day in Jerusalem in the temple. In a real sense, the story of Luke opens in Old Testament Israel. You can hear, if you try hard enough, the bleeding of sheep, the lowing of bulls, all waiting to be sacrificed. You can feel the weight of the seriousness of worship in the temple. You can hear the buzz of activity around the outer courts. You can see the enormity of the temple that King Herod has rebuilt. King Herod is reigning. He's been crowned by the Roman Empire. He's a puppet king. He's been sent to do the will of the empire. But he knows, and everyone around him knows, that that can be taken away from him just as quickly as it was given. Herod is really an enigma. He is cruel, but he's also generous. He has kept the peace here in Judea and the surrounding area. He allows the Jewish customs to continue just like the activity that we see here in Zechariah's life. He's a jealous man. He's consumed by fear, and he is just a few short years from losing his mind to mental illness. And Luke introduces us to a man named Zechariah, who is from the division of Abijah, and to his wife Elizabeth, who is a descendant of Aaron. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth are Levites through and through. The Levites were the tribe that God had given the responsibility of priesthood to. These are desperate days in Israel, days in which the people of God longed for a deliverer. Zechariah had likely been been born in a free, if not chaotic, Israel. But shortly after his birth, the Romans came in and occupied the territory, just like the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Greeks before. The presence of Rome was felt everywhere in Israel, especially in Jerusalem. The people longed to be free. They recalled the good days of King David, the beginning of the days of King Solomon. They remembered the turning back of Josiah, but they felt the weight of captivity. The days of a split kingdom, they cried out to God just like the Israelites in Egypt. The question was always on their mind and hearts, must the people of God continue to be ruled by pagan nations? At the opening of the story, Zechariah and Elizabeth live some 400 years after the last time God has spoken. Not since the prophet Malachi brought the words of the Lord to his people had we heard from God. Where was he? Was he listening? Did he even care anymore? Luke says of Elizabeth and Zechariah that they were both righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. And they were righteous, yet they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive. And when their story picks up, they're both well along in age. They live desperate lives as Israelites, but Zechariah and Elizabeth also live desperate life as a couple. They had prayed so expectantly for a child year after year, and yet God had not given them one. And you can feel their pain. Elizabeth must have felt broken. She felt like it was her fault. In their desperation, or in our desperation, the enemy often tips us with bad theology. We're following the law. We've kept every, every requirement. Why don't we have a child? 
If you listen, you can hear the whispers around the hill country of Judea, the looks of pity, the prayer request turned into gossip sessions, and now just the sad reality that that which was once hoped for is no longer even a possibility. The story feels dark, it feels sad, it feels hopeless. And yet, Zechariah and Elizabeth remained faithful to God. They were righteous. They kept the law. Even if thoughts crept in, they knew that being righteous and blameless wouldn't exempt them from heartaches and trials. They knew that God's blessing does not indicate God's approval. They remained faithful because God was their hope. There are some 25 divisions we read about in 2 Chronicles of priests. And the time came for Zechariah's division to serve in the temple. And there were so many priests uh, that they would cast lots to determine who would do what activity in the temple. And some tasks were, uh, there were so many priests that some tasks were really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, like lighting the altar of incense. And Luke says in this kind of tongue-in-cheek fashion here in the beginning of Luke that it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Right, God hasn't spoken in 400 years, and it just so happens that on this day, Zechariah is in the sanctuary. I can assure you that God has not been idly waiting for 400 years for a lot to fall on Zechariah. Zechariah is chosen by Lot, and he goes in, and he burns incense. We, we first learn about the altar of incense in Exodus 30, when Moses give, is given the instruction uh, to create the tabernacle. God tells Moses, you are to place the altar in front of the curtain by the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. The altar of incense does two things. First, it made the place smell better, particularly here just on the other side of the curtain where the high priest would go in and meet with God. After all, sacrifice is actually a really smelly business. Number two, it symbolized the prayers of the people ascending from the altar to the throne of God, which is precisely where we find the people here in this story. As Zechariah goes in to burn incense, Luke says that the whole assembly of the people were praying outside. And so that begs the question, what are they praying for? It could be any number of things. We know he, that Zechariah, at least, is not still praying for a son. He doesn't even believe it's a possibility. And so I think that the people of God outside of the temple and Zechariah now burning the incense are praying for the deliverance of Israel. It's the same prayer that the Israelites have prayed for generations. Listen to the words of God to Moses in Exodus 3, starting in verse 7. Then the Lord, then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them. He's going to do it again. Look at verse 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, standing, appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children 
and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. After 400 years of silence, God burst onto the scene with a message through the angel Gabriel to Zechariah the priest. Out of his silence, God declares salvation. Terrified out of his mind at the sight of Gabriel, Gabriel tells Zechariah to fear not, for the Lord has answered his prayer. And now, having been the first person to hear from God in 400 years, Zechariah, I assume regretfully at this point, responds in complete disbelief to him. He says in verse 18, How can I know this? Zechariah asks the angel, For I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Let me point out that God is certainly big enough to handle our questions. See, for instance, a little bit later in this chapter, Mary's response to Gabriel. But let me warn you that treating God like he doesn't know what is happening, or at worst that he is a liar, will not go well with you. It certainly did not go well with Zechariah. I mean, come on, man. You're standing steps from the Holy of Holies, talking to an angel. There's a decent head start on the veracity of the situation at hand. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zechariah was doing all the right things. He kept the commands of God. He followed the requirements of the law. He was righteous. He was a priest in the temple of God. For goodness sakes, on this day, he is lighting the altar of incense incense steps from the mercy seat of God. And yet, unbelief snuck into his heart. While staring at an angel of God, he was given the authority to speak on behalf of God. You and I are not exempt from unbelief. Unbelief can and will sneak into our hearts. Just recently, I finished the book of Judges. The book of Judges opens saying that there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the book of Judges is filled with some of the absolute most absurd things that happen in the Bible. And there were a couple of mornings when I was sitting in my office at the house in my quiet time, and my mind would start to wonder. And in the very back of my mind, this voice popped up and asked, is this really true? But hear the words of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily, while it's still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. The fight against the sin of unbelief is a daily one. It's to be fought in the setting of community. The fight of unbelief is one of the reasons we gather week after week in this place. You need to come to this place. You need to listen to your brothers and sisters sing to and about the Lord. You need to hear their prayers. Some Sunday mornings you're going to walk in here, your faith will be strong and others will be encouraged by it. There are some Sundays where you will walk in and you will be fighting unbelief and you need to hear the confidence that your brothers and sisters have in the Lord. 
And those thoughts creep in, run to Scripture, run to your community. Those things that seem harmless at first can grow and fester into unbelief. The author of Hebrews continues in verse 14, For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses, with whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief will always lead to us missing out on the blessings and plans of God. Zechariah knew the Bible. He knew of barren Sarah and Rachel and Hannah. He knew that God takes that which is desolate and brings forth out of it living water. Instead of listening to Gabriel and believing the message of God, Zechariah was blinded by his current situation. And we would do well to believe the words of Gabriel to Mary in the next passage, for nothing is impossible with God. Let's continue in the story in verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. It's at this point in the story that I get really excited about meeting Zechariah when we get to heaven. I want to know more maybe than anything else in the Bible what that conversation looked like when he got home to Elizabeth. Zechariah is just furiously writing on a tablet. Elizabeth is stunned, speechless at times herself. And yet what the Bible doesn't explicitly say here in this passage, we can see. Zechariah believes, at least somewhat. He shared the news with Elizabeth. She believed seemingly more than Zechariah believed it based on her interactions with Mary in a few verses. Look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Six months pass by when suddenly they get a visitor. It's their cousin Mary, and she's pregnant. And there sits Zechariah, unable to speak, his prayers answered and growing inside the two women in his home. His prophet son, John, growing in his wife, Elizabeth, and his deliverer, Jesus, growing in Mary. Fear not, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered indeed. Jump down to verse 57 in chapter 1 where the story picks back up. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. The whole town must have been overcome with joy. After all these years, God has finally given Zechariah and Elizabeth a son. And Gabriel's words are continuing to be trustworthy. Elizabeth gives birth an impartial fulfillment of what Gabriel had to say to Zechariah. Her neighbors and relatives rejoice that God has shown her great mercy. 59, verse 59, when they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. 
They said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. Listen, from the very beginning, people have been meddling in other people's business. Mansplaining isn't something that we created in our time. Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. I said earlier that Zechariah went home and believed. And I think in many ways, he just walked in faith, hoping that what he had heard was true. But I think it's clear in this moment, this is where we see true faith and obedience take place in Zechariah. The Lord, as he had promised, restores Zechariah's speech. And in response, Zechariah has nothing but praise for God. For nine months, Zechariah had been silenced. He suffered affliction for his unbelief. In his quietness of those nine months, there was no doubt much introspection and searching in his heart happened. He didn't waste those nine months whining and complaining. There seemed to be in him a welling up of praise to God. And in obedience and faith at the birth of John, it comes bursting out in a contagious manner. Look at verse 65. Fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea, and all who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. There's a revival in town when John is born. The silence had been broken not just in Zechariah's mouth, but more importantly, in God's. For 400 years, God kept silent, but salvation had dawned in the hill country of Judea. The Bible says, then filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah prophesies about God's salvation. And there are four things that he talks about. The first, the promise of salvation is deliverance. He says in verse 68, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. The Bible is a story of God reaching down and saving a people from sin and destruction and bondage. Jesus is the strong horn of salvation promised to David. He is the fulfillment of the message of God to the prophets. He is Abraham's seed, the blessing to all nations. All of the Old Testament has been building to this point in history. That which God spoke to the fathers, to the prophets, he will now speak through his son. What's he speaking? Deliverance. Indeed, God has heard the cries of his people, and he has sent himself to rescue them through the person of Jesus Christ. Your heart and your sin cries out for deliverance. Written on your very DNA is the law of God, is the justice of God that cries out, surely this isn't all there is. Surely there must be deliverance. And God in his great mercy cries out through the mouth of Zechariah, there is deliverance indeed. Number two, the privilege of salvation is worship. He has given us, verse 73, he has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all of our days. The privilege of salvation, of being delivered from the hand of our enemies, is that we are free to serve God without fear. That is to worship him in holiness and righteousness in his presence all of our days. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, 
but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been called out of darkness into marvelous light so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who saved you. Indeed, all of world history will culminate in the praise and worship of God. Revelation 22, 1-5 says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will be no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And Jesus promised that where two or more are gathered in his name, he will be in their midst. We believe and we proclaim that when we come together to worship God in this place, that he is here among us. The veil has been torn. We have been made royal priests. We are now, right now are standing in the presence of God, worshiping him. Brothers and sisters, a day is coming when we will see him face to face, when the throne of God will be in the city, when light and life will flow for all of eternity, and we will have the privilege to worship him in glorified bodies for all of eternity. What a privilege that God has saved us to himself. Number three, the proclamation of salvation is forgiveness. When you child, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. I love these verses because you can almost see Zechariah pick John up and just prophesy over him. And what a thing to say, John, your calling in life is to prepare people for their deliverer. They're expecting and longing political deliverance, but you, child, will prophesy the message of the Most High that the need for deliverance isn't political freedom, but freedom from their sin. You might be sitting here today wondering what it is that Jesus can do for you. It's this right here. Your sins need to be forgiven. And Jesus came to do just that very thing. Your sins have you in bondage, and you need to be rescued from the judgment of God. Because Jesus came and lived a sinless life and died on the cross, your sins can be forgiven. God's judgment can be satisfied. Because he rose from the dead, you can have eternal life with him. Number four, the purpose of salvation is peace. Verse 78, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, humanity has lived in darkness and the shadow of death. In our sin, we lie in darkness in a tomb covered in death's shadow. But behold, Emmanuel has come. He shines light in our hearts. The darkness flees and death has been defeated. Jesus ushers into us a life of peace, peace with God, peace with each other, and peace within ourselves. Because of our salvation, we have peace with God. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden because they couldn't live in the presence of a holy God. 
And Jesus, having been the propitiation of our sin, takes on our sin, takes on the wrath of God reserved for us, and imputes his righteousness onto us. And God says, I will make for you a paradise. I will live with you and reign with you for all the days of eternity. Because of our salvation, we have peace with each other. The streets of heaven will be filled with people from every tribe, nation, people, and language. Through the salvation of Jesus, we have been made one in Christ. And because of our salvation, we have peace within ourselves. The inner turmoil is gone. We are free to pursue righteousness and holiness all the days of our life. I absolutely love the story of Zechariah. Many of us in this room are like Zechariah. We serve the Lord with gladness. We seek to honor him, walking in his ways. Our story of waiting is like his. There are days when we have great faith. We walk with questions that are never answered, trials that never seem to pass, and yet our eyes are still fixed on God. There are days when we look far too closely at ourselves. We cannot see God or his plan because our current situation has, been blind, has blinded us. Let us together seek to be like Zechariah when the Lord restored his speech, bursting forth in praise to God, proclaiming the good news of the Messiah as we, like him, wait for the final day of the Lord, and we will be gathered together in the city of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you, in your great mercy, didn't remain silent. But just as you had promised Adam and Eve in the garden, Noah after the flood, Abraham, and all the rest, one was coming who would crush the head of the serpent. We praise you for Jesus, that he came to us, that he lived like we did. We thank you that he died on the cross, taking on the wrath that we deserved, and that three days later he rose from the grave. We thank you for the hope that we have, that we will one day be gathered with you in your eternal kingdom and live with you where light and life will abound. Father, we pray that we would fight against unbelief, that we would be righteous and holy, that we would live lives seeking to, to follow you, to listen to you, to follow what you have for us. Father, we thank you for this life of Zechariah that we can see. We pray that we would be faithful. We pray that our lips would have the praise of God on our mouths. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.